Uh, we're going to continue our series this morning, uh, Encounters with Jesus. And um, how would you feel about meeting with Jesus this morning? Uh, do you want to meet Jesus if he were here with us this morning? You know, with all the Easter signage that's up on the roads right now, inviting people to come to church, would you be more likely if one of the advertisements on these road signs said, we have Jesus at our church this week. He's, he's going to be there in the flesh, in person. Would you be more likely to go to that church than you would be on any other given Sunday? If you knew he was going to be there, would you want to go? I think I would. I think, I, I think I'd be a little more likely to go if I knew Jesus was actually going to be there. You know, why, uh, why do we get tricked into thinking that way sometimes? You know, I think because one of the things that Jesus is absolutely unwavering about with his disciples is that he says, I will always be with you. In fact, he's absolutely serious when he says to them, it will actually be better for you when I leave you because the helper will come. And when he comes, you will have far more of my presence. You will actually be far greater empowered for transformation to see this greater work in and through your life. And they struggle to believe just like we do, this encounter with Jesus. I think one of the things that we're being challenged with in this series is knowing and believing that Sunday after Sunday, he is here. Jesus is here and he wants to have an encounter with you. And he wants to meet with you through his people, the body of Christ. And he wants to remind you, I am here to encounter you through the Lord's Supper, through this table. I'm present with you even today. And I think he wants to remind us that he is with us through his word. So the question is, do you really want to meet with Jesus? Do you really want to encounter Jesus? I would say, don't be so quick to answer that question. You know, there's a lot of people in this series and in the scriptures that come face to face with Jesus and they leave and they're not so impressed. They're not transformed. And that's because when Jesus meets with people, one of the things he does is he begins to reveal what's really going on in our hearts. He surfaces our primary commitments. And that's a scary place to be. And so one of the things that the Bible is doing as we read about these encounters is asking us, how about you? Do you really want to meet with Jesus? One of the ways that the Bible presses this question is through all these encounters. It sort of puts out these people and says, which one are you? You have, you have busy, distracted Martha, and you have focused Mary. Which are you? A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Jesus with the 10 lepers. He heals all 10. One of them comes back and gives this praise and this thanksgiving. The other nine don't come back. Which are you? You have the story of the prodigal son who, who runs off and squanders everything in this sort of wasteful living, but he runs back to a heart of mercy. And then you have the older brother, the religious rule-keeping pharisaical brother who stays out of the party. And Jesus is posing the question, which are you? This morning we're faced with that same question as we enter into Holy Week. This is the week that we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to look at this passage where Jesus is on the cross. It's less than 24 hours ago 
Jesus has been in the upper room with his disciples sharing a meal, instituting this Lord's table, this sacrament that we're about to receive together today. And then just after that, they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray together. And then right after that, he's betrayed, he's arrested, he's tortured, and he goes before the cross on the mountain of Golgotha, this small summit called the Skull, and it's there that he's crucified. But on that cross, he's not alone. There's actually two other men who are dying beside him. And what we're going to learn about this morning as we look at these two men is that one of them dies an angry, cynical, bitter man. The other one dies hearing the sweetest words that you could ever hear. And so the question this morning will yet again be, which one are you? You know, I I don't want to be like overly dramatic as I say this. But I think this is one of the most important questions that you could put in front of you this morning, that God could put in front of you. It really is a matter of life and death. And so my prayer for you this morning is that you would lean in, that God would sift our hearts and show us his heart for us this morning. Let's read this passage together, and then let's pray that his presence and his mercy and grace would be with us yet again. Luke 23, 32 through 43. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence? We are being punished justly, for for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, under the power of your word and your forgiveness and your mercy, our hearts are meant to fall silent and to be humbled and transformed. And so I would just pray, Holy Spirit, be amongst us this morning. Be with your people. Show us your great and grand and compassionate heart to rescue and to save, even in the midst of all this brokenness. God, would you speak to our hearts this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to look at the three dying men. The first one is right next to Jesus. Jesus is surrounded by all this anger and all these insults. The Jewish leaders 
are mocking him. They're yelling at him. They have this angry hatred. And the Roman soldiers are there too. They're mocking him with insults. This guy is a king. They're hoisting up a sponge with wine on it as if to sort of say, we're the cupbearers and we're going to mock him as the king. What a joke. And yet here is a man who is actually being nailed to the cross as well. His life is essentially over. It's the bottom of the ninth. He's got two strikes. And incredibly, we find him railing against Jesus as well. Verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, why is he so angry? Because if Jesus is who he is supposed to be, then why isn't he doing anything to change these circumstances? You know, oftentimes when we read this passage, we hear that it's the two thieves that were being crucified on the cross next to Jesus. But actually, the reality is Rome didn't necessarily just crucify people for petty thievery, for theft. That really what Rome crucified people for was for sedition. Sedition is when you use your words, your actions to incite a revolution against the emperor or against Rome. And so in this case, it's Caesar. Whenever you try to incite this rebellion, Rome took that seriously. And so there's a good chance that the reason these two guys are up there is for the same reason that Barabbas was supposed to be up there. If you remember Barabbas, what was he being accused of and tried for? He was an insurrectionist and a murderer. And so these criminals, as the text call them, are up there for their radical views against Rome against, and Caesar. So this dying man, number one, he really sees himself as something like a William Wallace, like a freedom fighter. You know, Patrick Henry said, give me liberty or give me death. And so he's thinking of himself as, I'm going to be the person that helps lead a revolt against Rome. And now he's being humiliated, stripped naked. He's hanging on the cross in excruciating pain. And this dream of freedom from Rome is once again being crushed. And that's why he's so ticked at Jesus. Because if Jesus is the Messiah, if he's the one, then he has absolutely failed him and his people. You see, he's right there. He's going through the exact same experience as Jesus. And yet he misses him altogether. He misses Jesus. So what that tells us, it takes more than encountering Jesus in the flesh to be transformed. You can be in the worst predicament of your life. You can be just 10 feet away like this guy, and you can totally miss him. Because to have a life-transforming encounter with the person of Jesus means you need to understand why he came. You need to understand something essentially about the messianic mission, what he's really after. And so listen, we know that Jesus is going to come again in judgment one day. But that's not why he came the first time. Isaiah 53 says that the Messiah will be despised and rejected by men. He will be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He's going to be a suffering servant. He is going to go low so that we can be lifted up. He was pierced for our iniquities, crushed for our transgressions, and upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. So those wounds that Jesus is receiving on the cross are actually the very fulfillment of his messianic mission. They're, what, they're the reason that he came. 
And so this angry cynic has totally missed it. And so what that ultimately means is that this man is more interested in God as a means than he is interested in God as an end. I'm not really interested in a relationship with you. I'm interested in what you can give me. God, your job as God is to give me the good life, to make my life happy and secure and comfortable. And if you're not doing that, then you're not doing your job as God. Get me off the cross. Get me off out of this trouble, out of the jam that I'm in. And yes, I will proclaim you as Messiah. But what he really wants is just to get off the cross and kick Rome's butt. That's what he wants. You ever prayed like that? I can remember um, my freshman year in college. It's towards the end of my first semester. And I had a C in my biology class going into the final. And uh, Hope Scholarship was on the line. I needed a 92 on this biology exam. This 100 uh, question multiple choice comprehensive exam in biology. I needed a 92 to, to get a B in that class and to keep hope alive. And it didn't look good. Um, I had no business. I threw up a Hail Mary prayer. God, if you're real, okay, if you're real, will you help me get a 92 on this? And if you do, I will break up with my Jezebel of a girlfriend. I will get right with you immediately and I will follow you. And you know what happened? I actually got a 95 on that test. I missed five questions. And I broke up with that, a very confused young lady. And, um, and my life was transformed. Not at all. Two weeks later, I was back together with her. And I was disillusioned and frustrated about my inability to do anything about my life or follow God. Because I didn't actually want God. I just wanted him to make my life work. And so when our prayer life is rooted in this, this life, when our prayer life is rooted in this life, right here, right now, make that good, then if we actually get what we want, we'll, we'll stay distracted and disillusioned. And if we don't get what we want, we'll end up angry and bitter and cynical. You know, our catechism says that the chief end of man is to glorify God. And yet this dying cynic thinks the chief end of God is to glorify me, is to make my life right, to take care of my personal well-being. I'm only interested in God in so much as his plans make sense to me. And if they don't, and if his agenda would, if for the world lines up with mine, and because of that, he totally misses Jesus. And so unless we understand that God has not come to give you a life of ease, we might miss him too. That he might, in fact, leave you on the cross because he wants to give you something better. He wants to give you himself. We're going to look at dying man number two. There's something interesting in um, Matthew 27 and in Mark 15. That's not on your screen, but if you were to read those, what you'll read is that just as the crowds were shouting their insults at Jesus... It says, in the same way, even the criminals who were crucified were taunting him. Now, here's what's fascinating. What's fascinating to me is that both of these guys on the cross start off hurling insults at Jesus. 
They're both accusing him and they're both treating him harshly, hammering away. And yet in the last minutes of his life, the scales fall away from this dying man number two. And he starts to see Jesus for who he is. And he begins putting his faith in him. It's incredible and beautiful. How does that happen? What does he see? Well, I think he sees a heart of mercy. I think he hears Jesus' prayer and he's overwhelmed by it. You know, we know that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We could say the same thing about prayer. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth prays. And what does Jesus' heart produce? Jesus' heart on the cross produces a prayer that says, Father, forgive them. Even as they're nailing these, these huge uh, stakes into his arms and into his feet, he is praying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Here in the midst of all this hostility, all this anger, this man is confronted by the glorious heart of God, which at the core of it longs to forgive sinners. And I think when he sees that astonishing mercy coming out from the heart of God, he must think to himself, look at all that mercy. Wow. I wonder if there's any of that available for me. And he reaches out with a prayer of desperation and asks to receive it for himself. And you know what happens? You know, the very first thing that happens is he confesses his guilt. He confesses his guilt. I don't think that what he feels guilty about is any kind of sedition against Rome. I don't actually think either of these guys think that they're doing the wrong thing by going against Rome. But I actually think that what's happening for him in that moment is he is seeing the righteousness and the glory of God, a holiness manifested before him, a holy heart. Here is this man that's being tortured to death. There's no legitimate grounds against him. And in that moment, he knows he's on holy ground. He knows he's not worthy. He's coming to grips with a deeper uncleanness. I read a story this week about um, the Doolittle Raid after World War II, or during World War II. Have you ever seen the movie Pearl Harbor? The, the, the Doolittle Raid is in there. And so after Pearl Harbor is bombed, we strike back. America strikes back, and they, shoot, they go back towards Japan. And there was a guy named Jacob DeShazer. He was one of the pilots, and he went down over Japan. He was a POW for three years. He was tortured. He was kept in solitary com- confinement. And during that time, he got a hold of a Bible. He was not a believer, but he read the Bible all the way through, and then he read it again, and then he read it again all the way through, and then he read it again all the way through, and somewhere between the first reading and the sixth reading, this man, Jacob DeShazer, came to Christ, and he saw the forgiveness of God, and what's amazing is when he got out of prison, He decided to go back to Japan and preach the gospel and share how Christ had come to forgive sin. And so he wrote this little pamphlet called, I Was a Prisoner of Japan. And he went to Japan and he printed out a million copies of these and he passed them out all over the country. And there was a man in a train station who picked up one of these pamphlets. It was a man named Mitsuo Fuchida. Fuchida was actually the lead pilot in flying over Pearl Harbor. He was the one that was leading the planes, yelling, Torah, Torah. And Fachita finds this 
pamphlet in the train station and he's reading it and he feels compelled to go get a Bible. Here's Fachita who had uh, been tortured by his anger after the war. He found no ability within himself to forgive anybody else for their crimes against him. And now he's reading this pamphlet. He picks up the Bible and he said the verse that changed his heart was this very verse in Luke 23 where he read Jesus praying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And immediately he saw the heart of God. And he said, that is something set apart. That is unlike anything I've ever seen in human experience. That is a holy heart. And he broke down. He knew immediately the power to forgive began with the reality that he himself needed to be forgiven. And he was broken and he gave his life to Christ. This is like Peter who is overwhelmed by the catch of fish. And he sees something in Jesus that undoes him. It's no longer about the fish. And he falls on his knees and says, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. He sees the holiness of Jesus face to face with the greatness of his righteousness and glory and immediately causes him to confess his sin. And so here's dying man number two. And there's this recognition of the depths of his sin and this plea for mercy. Jesus, will you remember me? When you come into your kingdom, suddenly he's done with the insults. Suddenly he's not asking for relief. He's not asking to get out of the jam that he's in. He's only asking for Jesus. I don't care if you take me off the cross. I just want you. You know, if you look at the world around you and you say, God, can you just get us back to when the interest rates were good? Okay? Can you like elect some leaders in Washington that know what they're doing? Can we get some of those? Um, can you just make the schools safe again? Can you get rid of my debt? Can you help my, my husband get out of his addiction? Let's just get the wheels going on a good life again, here, right now. You know, there, there's nothing wrong with those prayers. In fact, we're encouraged to pray them. God, let your kingdom come. But we do not want to separate them from what God is truly trying to give us, which is himself. And the reason we have hope in any of those promises is because they're in him. He is the one. And so, God, am I only interested in you to the degree that you'll come through me, to come through for me? I think we need to be honest about that this morning. Can you be honest about that? Dying man number one says, get me out of this mess. Save my skin. Dying man number two says, leave me on the cross. Save my soul. Just remember me. Just remember me. I don't need to be rescued physically. I don't need my circumstances to change. I just need you. Which one of those men are you this morning? To forfeit Jesus and to get the good life is hell. But to forfeit the good life and get Jesus is paradise. Which are you? All right, dying man number three, that's Jesus. You know, as I read this passage this week, I was struck by the scene that Jesus is, that Luke is describing for us here. I want you to just think about what we're reading and what you're seeing in Luke. On the ground below Jesus, on the ground below him are the crowds 
They're the religious leaders. They're the Roman soldiers. And they are hurling anger and violence and insults up at Jesus. To the left and to the right of Jesus are two criminals who are guilty and condemned and they are insulting Jesus and yelling insults at him and treachery. Above Jesus, there is a plaque hanging and that sign sort of sums up all the ridicule in this snideful and sarcastic way. This is the king of the Jews. Jesus is surrounded by hatred. Luke 23 actually begins with an angry mob, trumped up charges, and an unjust sentence, the torture of an innocent man, total injustice. Luke 23 ends with darkness covering the whole land, an earthquake shaking the very ground that they're standing on. And right in the middle of all that is Jesus. Do you see the picture that the gospel is painting for us? Imagine if you could take all the injustice, all the hatred, all the violence, all the treachery, all the humiliating abuse, and center it on one moment in history. You'd have this moment in Luke 23, a broken, fallen, and cursed world, dark and shaken to its core, cursing and insulting Jesus. And right in the middle of all that, right in the middle of all that, you have this prayer that is rising up out of an unwavering mercy, a steadfast love, a pure compassion from all eternity saying, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. You see, at the very center of the very worst of all that humanity is bringing forth in its sin and its rebellion, the core longing of love from God to forgive and reconcile sinners to himself. For what can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Nothing. I I love how John puts it. In him was life. And this was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. The third man dying is the hope of redemption for the entire world. This is the Son of God. This is Jesus Christ. And so here's what I want you to know today as you think about that. It means that you can't outsin His grace. It means that anytime you come to God with all of your sin, you can be assured that Christ will race to you with forgiveness and mercy He is spring-loaded to forgive. Though the darkness can feel like it's closing in, though you might feel like you are giving up, he is here and he will overcome. You know, if Jesus is begging the Father, think about this, if Jesus is begging the Father to forgive these people who are driving stakes into his arms and they're not even asking for forgiveness, how much more you when we come with whatever we can muster in our brokenness and our weakness, and we say, God, help, help me, forgive me. Jesus ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. And secondly, what I want you to see Jesus praying is this unbelievable 
or what he's saying to the dying man with these beautiful words at the end is, truly, truly, I say to you, you, today you will be with me in paradise. I think most of us, I, make it, I made a mistake when I, when I read that. I think most of us may, might make this mistake too. Uh, I read it like this. I tell you the truth, because you've received me, then you will be in paradise when you die. But I actually don't think that that's what Jesus is emphasizing. That's true. To be a Christian means that you will be in paradise. But I think that the way that this sentence is constructed, Jesus is actually highlighting something else. He's saying, you're with me. He's actually saying to receive my work on the cross is for you to join with me, to be with me where I'm going into the Father's presence. And that's the joy and assurance we need. Listen, do you remember in Jesus' prayer in the garden just a few hours ago in John 17? He says, Father, I want them to be with me where I am to see my glory, the glory you gave me before the creation of the world. And then in John 17, 23, he says, I want you to love them even as you love me. Here's what he means. He means, Father, I'm going to the cross so that they can be with me and you can regard them and love them just as you regard and love me. In the same way you think about me, I want you to think about them. That's what it means to have an advocate. An advocate is kind of like having a really, really good defense attorney. And so if you ever get in trouble and you have to go to before a court, what you want is a really, really good defense attorney. You want an advocate. Because how does the judge and the jury and the courtroom look at you? They look at you through the eyes of your defense attorney, your advocate. And if your advocate knows what he's doing or she's doing, if they're smart or wise or intelligent, then you look smart, wise, and intelligent. But if they're an idiot, then you look like an idiot. If he or she wins, you win. If he or she loses, you lose. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm your advocate. I w- you are with me. I am with you. First John 2 says that we have an advocate before the Father, it's Jesus. And that means the minute you become a Christian, your sins are not just washed away, hocus pocus. Woo, now you're on your own. It means that you are with him, wrapped up in his love, seated with him in the heavenly realms. This is what Ephesians 2 says. He made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus past tense. And that means that whether you die today or not, like the thief on the cross, you are already seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Right now, you are with Christ next to the heavenly father today, positionally seated in paradise. That's assurance. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means that you never need to defend yourself again. Why would you? Why would you have to prove yourself? You have a new status, a new standing. That's what it means to be lost in your advocate, to be glorious to the eyes of God, the only eyes that count, and to be delighted in. That's the promise that he makes to this man next to him on the cross. And that's the offer for each of us today. The only question is, will you believe that? Will you trust in that? Will you hope in that? And that's the question that the text leaves us with today. Will you believe? I want to close uh, with an illustration from Tim Keller. And then we're going to go to the table 
and this is really a, a simple illustration, but it's one that challenges me every time I hear it because of some of my own core idols. Keller was a, a pastor in New York until he retired recently, and he used to say to his congregation, you know, I don't really think you believe the gospel at all. You know, I, I don't think you really believe all that I'm telling you because you know why? You don't take criticism very well. If anybody snubs you, uh, if anybody, if you're afraid of missing out or being overlooked, if you're just always constantly wrapped up in yourself and worried about yourself, that's not it. That's not it. You're missing it. He said, you might have some general idea that God loves you, but you have no concept that you are seated with him in the heavenly realms right now, that you have ascended with him, that you are beautiful in his righteousness. You don't see it. You're not taking a hold of it with a heart of belief. And so then here's his illustration. He says, imagine that you're in New York and you're taking a cab and it's say $9 and so you give the cab driver $10 and you get home. Now I want you to know that you are a billionaire, that your savings account has a billion dollars in it. And when you get home, you pull out the change in your pocket and you realize you had three $10 bills to start with and now you only have one. Wait, wait a minute. Did I give the cab driver two $10 bills? Did I drop one on the floor of the cab? Did it, did it fall out on the corner of 86 and West End? Now, if you're a billionaire, do you call all the cab drivers in New York? Hey, hey, was it you? Was I with you today? I, is there a $10 bill? Do you rush back down to New York City, get down on your hands and knees in the corner and start looking for a $10 bill? Of course not. You're a, you're a billionaire. You've lost nothing. And this is what Keller is saying, that this truth that you have before you right, right here, that you are with Christ. He is your advocate. You are wrapped up in him. That should so change and mark the way you think about criticism and fear and insecurity and all that's happening in your life, friend, you should say, I have the riches of Christ. I'm a billionaire. I've lost nothing. And so what we're faced with this morning as we look at this is our gospel anchor. This is our hope. This is what brings security and confidence and poise. I have the riches of Christ. I am his. He is mine. And so our prayer is that God would give us eyes to see that again, even as we go to the table now. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for, um, we thank you for our advocate. We thank you for your heart of mercy. We thank you that in the midst of all the darkness in the world, the greatest hope that we could possibly have is true and it's your heart of love and compassion. That's what held you there. And so, Lord God, we come this morning to celebrate that hope again and for it to change and transform our lives. God, I pray that you would help us to set aside any part of us that would want just this good life in this world right now. And instead, what we would long for is the King to come and reign in our hearts again. Would you do that this morning as we, uh, as we take the table? We pray in your name. Amen.